The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, markets, creatives, misfits. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. The big outlets are getting smaller. Even the most successful New York Times, Washington Post, built these huge subscription businesses are fighting to stay level and losing subscriptions as the news got more boring post-Trump and post-COVID. And no single big thing is coming up to replace it. In case you missed it, highlights from recent episodes, including a major magazine editor who left to become a high school teacher, a former Disney executive on the media giant Summer from Hell, the queen of cake pops pivoting to masala chips, and why the New York Times former media columnist joined with the CEO of Bloomberg Media to launch a news startup. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. You're listening to Full Disclosure Rewind, highlights from recent episodes. We start with Neil Patel, former Disney executive on the media conglomerate Summer from Hell. What with TV in decline, streaming losing billions, magazine succession up in the air, we call this episode Disney Minus. This is arguably the most admired and understood and recognized media conglomerate on the planet. I was always impressed that it had such a diversified portfolio of assets, theme parks, which clearly were shut down during the pandemic, but have roared back when it acquired Cap City's ABC in the mid-1990s. ABC is a prestige brand, ABC News, Good Morning America, Lost, if you think of everything else that came with it, the acquisition of Pixar, uh, the Star Wars Library and Lucasfilms, Marvel, It should be in the catbird seat right now, Neil, and I don't understand why Bob Iger at age 72 has had to come back and suggest that maybe a sale is coming up of various parts. The stock is at a multi-year low. It's even below where it was in the worst of the pandemic. How did this all happen? I think it's uh, some amount of hubris, some amount of bad luck, and you know, sort of believing in the momentum of the business and how it works. I think it's really uh, easy to second guess these guys now. But if you look at the moves they were making, they were actually the right moves. So going all the way back to the Cap Cities acquisition, it wasn't ABC that was the gem. What turned out to be the gem was ESPN. And it generated, you know, it was a cash machine. It did really well for the company. And Disney's always had that. It's got it's had multiple cash machines going, not only its theatrical business, which we all know it for, and the theme parks to some degree that we know it for, but the cable business. And I think where we are today is the decline of the cable business is happening faster than anybody thought. And a lot of the industry did not prepare well for it and ran headlong into the streaming business. And in Disney's case, I do agree with you, having been on the inside, it's a very disciplined company with a great brand that is really, if you're inside it, it's a machine. It's not just that theme parks exist or the animation business is there or, uh, you know, 
uh, theatricals taking off. Those pieces generate cash, but what Disney had before better than anyone else is they all work better together. It is an engine. It's a the whole thing is a machine and it's self-reinforcing. Mm. It's got the it's got sort of this wonderful creative feedback loop uh, that works, whereas the other companies that it competes against weren't always that. Today, uh, Comcast NBC's assembled a similar kind of cohesive machine to to be in this business. And those multiple revenue streams worked out really well, but the cable business declined rapidly. That really hit the profitability of the company. Would you say that the cash, I mean, cash of ESPN had anesthetized ABC and Disney? Because you could have seen this coming. I mean, the earliest anybody saw these over-the-top boxes, people were getting Apple TVs in 2011 and 2012. And Iger himself was very prescient. I remember ABC's Lost was the hit in the mid-aughts. And he says we he was pretty forward about coming up and saying we have to be less abashed about putting this stuff up online maybe the night after it airs. I mean, there's something that's very sacrosanct about linear television, but the world is increasingly moving online. But I feel like you might not understand that urgency if you have such a gusher from ESPN, if you're extracting something like 7 or $10 per cable customer across the country, regardless of the fact that you know, they don't use ESPN or ESPNU and the other things. And that cross-subsidizes other businesses and makes you think that your disruptive kind of off-the-cliff moment is, is ever hence. Well, I think there's probably some truth to that in terms of it, it, uh, it giving some comfort. But I think I've got to believe because ESPN was so pivotal to all these cable packages that were being sold that the cable operators needed that the ESPN business, the guys inside the company were pretty smart. Tom Staggs, uh, Kevin Mayer, they were the chief architects of the strategy that you know they put in place. They knew what was going to happen. I can't believe they didn't. They they did know what was going to happen. But my guess is that everybody thought, yes, cable is shrinking. Cable is going to be not the business it was, but ESPN was going to be uh, the last to be going down. There were many others, undifferentiated brands uh, that was going to happen to first. And all those things came to pass. And frankly, their strategy of you know betting on big brands and big franchises as part of the Fox uh, acquisition was supposed to anesthetize them from that. And to some degree, it did, owning those assets uh, in the way they do, in the consolidated way they do. Those brands still attract audiences. The challenge now is, one, the theme packs have come roaring back, fine, but that's the only real reliable cash source they have, right? That's basically an American rite of passage for most families. It's sold at a luxury price, that business still is still solid. And if you look at inside the company's ranks, a lot of the theme park executives are ascendant because of that success. It's funny, incidentally, you you and I here in Virginia, you drive up on the 95 and you see King's Dominion. Right. And the strip over the, the, the highway sign that used to say Paramount's King's Dominion. I mean, yep. Paramount is in a lot more trouble right now than you know Paramount, parent of old Viacom and CBS and the MTV and Nickelodeon networks. It used to have a theme park business. It's like you know life imitating art with succession, that that business has had its highs and its lows and other media conglomerates have divested and, and both absorbed theme parks, but it's it seems like their shine is definitely back on that business again. Yeah, because the theme park experience can't be ripped off, right? You can't steal it. You can't somehow truncate it. You have to go there. And your kid's going to tell you, ask you why you haven't gone there. It's got a lot of pester power. 
And it's one of the, you know, in an era where, you know, personal connection and family experiences are rare, that is kind of a touchstone thing to do. And that business will always uh, be strong. It's a question of pricing it. It's a question of sort of these uh, larger uh, macroeconomic conditions uh, that drive it. I mean, the economy, when it's not great, people cut back on going down there. And when the economy is good, or in this case, what they're calling revenge travel. A lot of people who are locked up for two years coming out and wanting to be with each other. Disney was at the top of the slot. And I think their bookings are st- uh, still strong despite the recent Wall Street Journal article. Their bookings are strong for the fall and the spring. It's, it's a solid business. The problem is the cable business is not a solid business and uh, no longer a solid business. Put that aside. Yep. Put that aside for the minute, because they doubled down on content under Bob Iger, a calendar year before the onset of the can- pandemic. The close of Disney's seventy-one point three billion dollar purchase of the film and TV assets held by Twenty First Century Fox. I mean, Rupert was selling, and Bob Iger was buying, and that let Disney celebrate the merger with Fox. It added properties such as The Simpsons. That's no small asset. The Shape of Water, Avatar, Atlanta. If you think about everything else mm-hmm. over the years, Pixar Entertainment. I mean, that was a masterstroke. Lucas Films and how they accordioned out Star Wars and Return of the Jedi to The Mandalorian and all these other things that make the Disney Plus app so sticky. So here we are lamenting cable networks and advertising. But again, I'm not playing dumb. Shouldn't they be sitting so pretty? They have all this premium content. And yes, they launched Disney Plus in the pandemic yes. at a teaser low rate. You're a parent of two young kids. You know this. And they they ratchet the price up. And there's, there's quite a bit of elasticity in that. I'm willing to pay for that library. Meanwhile, they have ESPN. They're going to have a controlling stake of Hulu, which has its own hits. Shouldn't they be absolutely sitting pretty? Shouldn't I be thinking of uh, linear television and advertising kind of the same way the New York Times thinks of print advertising right now? It's it's declining, but it's not my core business. I don't. Uh, I think I think so. I think that that was a startling thing, and this is where Iger coming out last week saying the TV business, at least the linear business, and I would argue the cable business as well, is is on the block as he is signaling that you know even though he came from the TV business himself and was a beneficiary both personally and as, as a company from it, that he is willing to, you know, uh, nothing sacrosanct. They may not be sitting pretty now, but I think they will always be around and they'll always um, endure because of the brand they have and the collection of assets they have. The Fox acquisition in retrospect looks like, you know, given how quickly the tides receded on this industry and how things are changing, the Fox acquisition, I think the smarter, the person who comes out ahead on that, I hate to say it, is Rupert Murdoch. He turned out to be, you know, those assets at this point may feel like maybe perhaps they overpaid. But in the long run, that IP and that library can be mined for a long time. And these are enduring uh, franchises, not to mention how well the Marvel acquisition went. Should they be sitting pretty? Yeah, they should be sitting pretty, but they're also dealing with some pretty significant tectonic shifts in the industry and in viewer habits and viewer alternatives, right? They have alternatives in terms of the non-professionally produced content on YouTube and elsewhere and so many other choices. One of the things that Iger did that most people don't know when he first took over he had a big meeting with all the executives at Walt Disney World. He had everybody come down. 
And the message of that was we're getting out of distribution. And this was around 2002, 2003, if I recall. Maybe it was 2005. He made the declaration we're getting out of distribution. So they sold, you know, things like ABC Radio, uh, you know, and all their assets that were distribution-related assets. And that was prescient uh, then, and it is still now. That whole sort of insight has come to fore. Distribution is now a commodity in many ways. So holding IP, especially differentiated IP, IP that you can, you know, you know who it's for, like Disney IP, still has a lot of power. What's gone wrong is the economics of it. How do people pay for that? You know, that's really what's at risk right now. And that's, we will figure it out as an industry. We'll always figure out how we're going to pay for it. You know, what constitutes a story will remain the same, a beginning, a middle, an end, and someone to root for, right? I, I hate the word content. Your car manual is a content, but your car manual on a side of a road at night <laughs> with a serial killer loose and your car broken down, that's a story, right? So to me, like content will matter. <laughs> we'll figure out how we're going to pay for it. The biggest challenge right now is we don't know what's, how big the pie will be, uh, what will go in the pie, and if they'll even be pie-shaped. Like it's, There's just so much uncertainty they didn't know if the executives wanted to, to sort of make these deals. They don't know what the future really looks like and how everything's going to get paid for and therefore have some insight as to how they're going to share it with all the other folks that actually make the good stuff. You were listening to some of our recent episode, Disney Minus. Catch the whole thing wherever you get your podcasts. We checked in with Craig Matters, the high school teacher who used to be the top editor at Money Magazine. He discussed his leap of faith into teaching. You went from 2015 to this vision quest. You're now a teacher at the Springfield Honors Academy in Massachusetts, which is a public magnet school that prepares undeserved students for success in competitive colleges. You went back and reinvented to become a teacher. And I want you to tell us, like, what are these moments, like on the train from New Jersey or Brooklyn, where you were like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. The stress versus the, the karmic enjoyment of doing this is just not worth it for me. And you thought back to what your teachers did for you? Yeah. So it was a, it was a couple of things. I had always had in the back of my mind that someday I'd teach again. And in fact, interestingly enough, often my columns in Money Magazine would be telling my readers, careers have second acts. Like you really want to be thinking about this. Probably what you're doing for most of your work life won't be what you do for all of it. So at some point, I just decided to take my own advice, I guess. But what really drove it was two things. One was both the economic, frankly, and the psychological benefits of running a magazine were declining. Every, you know, every year was cut the budget some more. Hmm. Oh, that really talented, experienced person left. You can hire them with someone right out of school that you're going to pay $40,000 to. That got old. I had a conversation. The thing that crystallized it for me was a conversation I had with, with one of my bosses uh, who said to me, your job is to produce the MVP, the minimum viable product. Hmm. And, you know, while in technology, that means 1.0, but you know there's a 2.0 coming, right? That was not the case for what we were doing. I knew what he meant. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, I got to start thinking about something else. So could I ask you, did you live in Manhattan? Did you live in Brooklyn? 
So I lived in Maplewood, New Jersey, uh, and, which and was well, you so were co- you were coming into the Port Atrocity or Penn Station every day. <laughs> Penn Station, yeah. And so Penn lots Station. of times, like I had this too on the Metro North when I had to reconsider, you know, moving from New York to Virginia for family reasons. But lots of times to think about it. And, uh, you know, I had the, the Talking Heads lyric going into my head, you know, how did I, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful house. Like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I signing up for sweatshop conditions? It's not what I originally signed up for 12 years prior to that. So did you have this conversation with your wife? Were you already an empty nester? Do you mind my asking? Yeah. So my daughter had, our daughter had already graduated college and our son was in college. And so we were at a spot where we could see the end of the big obligations were near. Mm. I was pretty miserable. My wife certainly knew I was pretty miserable because I'm sure I did a reasonably good job of making her pretty miserable. (laughs) Uh, Same here. Yeah. And so, you know, this notion that I would teach, which kind of had been long running in the back of my head. Well, now I was 53. Okay, maybe now, because if not now, when? And so, you know, we broached it and ran some numbers and timing owing to the peculiarities of public company accounting was all too happy to buy out a chunk of my contract and, and give me enough to be able to go back to school and sort of, you know, rebuild or start over. Did you start an exploratory committee? I mean, you hear about all of these other, especially attorneys. You used to write for a publication that covered attorney life and culture pretty intimately. You got your big start there. And they, a lot of them seem to burn out or have a third life crisis and want to go back and teach. Yeah, I mean it's not a, it's not an unusual thing although I wish frankly I wish more later career professionals did do it because I think we actually add something to the classroom and to a school culture. You know, there's some authenticity that we can speak about the the working world with mm. uh, that I think is important for for students to hear. Uh, but for me it was I had sort of long thought that I kind of owed my high school teachers uh, some payback. I grew up in a kind of working class, middle class section of Philadelphia, uh, very parochial in every sense of the word. I went to Catholic school. About a third of the 700 guys I graduated with even went to college. Mm. And they all pretty much stayed in Philadelphia. And I had a few teachers who pushed me to sort of get beyond that world. And I ended up, oddly enough, at, at Vassar College, which was in the middle of sort of a transition from, from women's uh, college to co-ed. And that kind of made a huge difference in, you know, how my life turned out. And so along, you know, always in the back of my mind was this idea of life would have been very different for me had I stayed in Philadelphia. And, and, and I owed those teachers uh, who gave me the nudge. I, I owed them something. It's pretty, so maybe this it's was pretty to cool to see it in a kind of a whiplashing uh, version on your CV. Uh, as, as 2015 was the last year that you were managing editor of money. 2015 to 2016, intern, Franklin County Tech School, Turner's <laughs> Fall, Massachusetts. Tell me how that happened. Man, you want to talk about a comeuppance. Uh, so one of the things you have to learn when you're going from being, you know, an, an editor and an executive to being a school teacher is... No one has to listen to you. Uh, and, and that was a real sort of change. It was sort of like, oh, I don't, no one cares about my resume or no one cares about the title that I used to hold. Like, this is a completely new game. I'm starting over and I really have to earn 
the respect of these kids from the ground up. They they don't know me from Adam, and nor do they care. You know, it reminds uh, me of the Fix lyric 40 years ago, Saved by Zero. There's something <laughs> wonderful about kind of getting dressed down to nothing. <laughs> it was really humbling. I remember there was a day where I had to play a movie. My mentor teacher at the time was out of the classroom, and I was fumbling with the technology. And like one of the kids looked at me and was like, do you even know what you're doing? And I was like, God, only my own children speak to me that way. No one else speaks to me that way. But I had to sort of learn how to sort of deal with that. Uh, yeah, it was it was very humbling. You immediately go to the UMass Amherst Graduate School of Education, right? It must be in whiplashing yes. format. You just up from New Jersey and go to Massachusetts. And then- so not so much. We had a uh, we had a, a cabin in Guilford, literally a log cabin in Guilford, Vermont, that was a vacation place. And so as I was sort of starting to look around, thinking about how was I going to make this move, uh, I actually went down to UMass and I, I, you know, talked to the head of the the dean of the School of Education at the time. She was the one who told me, "Oh, we have this program for second career folks." You know, you, it's an intensive program, but you finish your master's in, you know, 14 months as opposed to two years and you're teaching the whole time. And so my wife and I made the decision, OK, this is what we'll do. I'll, you know, I'll live in the cabin for nine months. Uh, kind There's of almost something Thor- Thorovian about it. I, very, very much so. And I mean, it literally was a log cabin, uh, <laughs> mostly heated by a wood stove. Uh, <laughs> my neighbors were cows. It was very different. It was very different. But it, you know, it did let me, I needed to decompress. I mean, I was really, the stress of trying to do well and do good uh, in the magazine industry had really sort of, you know, taken its toll on me. And so throwing myself into something else and then throwing myself into it in this, you know, incredibly bucolic environment was, was Definitely good for the soul. But Craig, definitely not one of those tropes we'd see in the notorious retire rich, retire early issues, which I couldn't stand. They'd decide every year, like <laughs> my editors would, I'd be like, oh, at least do something that's not so mercenary that shows a couple on the beach with the right contours and paintbrush. Oh, don't or don't even get into that territory of open a and b or an omelet thing. I mean, this is definitely right-sizing your cost structure. So that's the other thing that teachings allowed me to do. It's allowed me to pay back for the sins that I committed as the editor of a service magazine, yes. But the idea that you're going to do a second thing and that you will have to right-size your costs, uh, that was part and parcel of, of advice that we gave. It's not many people who can go from highly successful career number one and you know make the same kind of money in career number two that just doesn't generally happen but it was a big yeah it was a big shift thank you honey it, it was a big shift in our in our standard of living for sure you were listening to some of our recent episode what matters catch the entire conversation wherever you get your pods full disclosure do stay with us This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. You can catch me on all social media at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our radio listeners on WVTF, Radio IQ NPR, across the great commonwealth. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you are just joining us, this is a look back at some recent episodes. I talked with Kea. The Food Network featured cake pop mogul 
On her big pandemic-launched pivot to national consumer packaged goods, think masala-flavored potato chips. If you ever get the chance to try Kea's Mango Lassi Milkshake, oh my goodness, I'm breaking all sorts of walls here, but this is full disclosure. And I want to toot my own horn a little bit because I sensed that at the very outset when you were on one of these first episodes in 2014, Kea is going places. She's resourceful enough. She's audacious enough. Now you're on the verge of taking a venture round. You were picked as one of Lighthouse Labs cohort here in Virginia. And in between, and we're going to get into that, you were the winning contestant on the seventh season of Food Network's Spring Break Championship. And I know that's a very bittersweet memory for you, but I want to get to how the potato chips scaled. I mean, it sounds a little inside baseball and everything, but it's one thing to do it as a courtesy and a thank you kiss for your valuable customers. It's another thing to get a deep frying vat. And when you get, I don't know, Cisco or PFG or others coming up to you and saying, can you distribute this across the East Coast? You might remember we had the Nightingale ice cream sandwich people mm-hmm. on our show here from uh, the University of Richmond. And it's ridiculous now. You see them in 7-Elevens across the country. That was something that started with a couple here in RVA Dine. And then next thing, they're selling them at Fenway Park in Boston. Next thing, New Yorkers are asking you about it. When did you have that hockey stick moment in your head with the potato chips? I think I always had it, to be honest. I think the first time I put that spice blend on a potato chip, I knew in the back of my head that I had something. It's an instinct that a chef has, and it, it rarely leads me the wrong way. But I think for me, um, as I created this chip, I kind of paid more attention to our stores, our grocery stores, and what the layout is like. And you'll see that there is like an ethnic aisle, and there is an aisle where you get all these American snacks, and kind of started notice the segregation. I've come to a point where I'm not a big fan of the word ethnic. I don't care for those those dubious aisles where sometimes they're in a dark place. So my dream is to be in the main aisles next to the big boys because I feel like we live these integrated lives. My own family, we're interracial. My husband is, is Caucasian. I'm Indian. My daughter is biracial. So I want to create a space where she can walk in and just buy a snack that speaks to her heritage because uh, more and more families are blended now. How are we blurring the lines? I mean, I can go and look at various, you know, Kroger brand organic beef jerky will have a bulgogi version, a Korean version. I mean, it's broken through the main line. That special aisle in Target, Walmart with the Mexican, Asian, all the things compacted, it's clearly bleeding into the snack aisle. You see the famous collector's versions of Lay's that they find the Iberian jamon or people who Instagram them everywhere. Your goal is to break out of this, to not be relegated to that aisle, to be in the main aisle. Absolutely. I do not want to be, you know, pigeonholed into an ethnic brand. What about the deep frying capability? I'm just curious. Oh, about yeah, this. they're deep frying. Um, so we didn't actually deep fry them ourselves. We were sourcing the potato chips. There were kettle chips that we were sourcing from a small maker. And how were you coating them with this proprietary blend? Ah, now that's a secret. So we actually came up with a very ingenious way of the spice combining with the potato. It's a technique that kind of took them to the next level, and I can't disclose it. Even though it's full disclosure, I can't disclose it. But can you tell me how, so was it like the Queen's Gambit where you woke up one night and looked at the ceiling and <laughs> this spice in the mortar and pestle, this blend came to you? No, tell blend, me something like that. Well, the blend I always was making, right? And I perfected it over the years. Um, so it's a recipe I came up with. Um, and I've always tweaked it a little bit. Every time I made it, I tweak it a little bit. And even now, I'm still tweaking it. I don't think I'll ever be 100% happy with it. So um, that's like an ongoing thing. 
What was your exploratory committee like when you, uh, you know, outside of Pillow Talk, when you wanted to take this to friends and mentors? And, you know, if you were doing a restaurant, you would have a friends and family tasting. Or if you were test driving your, I mean, it, it is an incredible mango lassi milkshake. <laughs> it's so super high end. I think I'm picking up something here. Okay. Get the hint. I mean, that combined with the potato chips, just it's just mind-boggling. And again, it sounds like I'm advocating on behalf of this, but it's a reason why I was first interested in you. It's 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 why I snag you horse collar you to come back on the show. Who did you talk to? Nobody. My customers talked to me. I again, the repeat sales. No, were, but about scaling it. Well, about scaling it. So I um, there are two people who are from my family and they're my mentors there's two men one of them is in in the world of finance and one is in the world of operations and those two men have um really helped me navigate all this like setting up a company and because i've been in business for 13 years right and I, the cake pops is still ongoing by the way candy valley is very much alive we're doing desserts we're doing special cakes and birthdays and whatnot that is intensely labor intensive you're labor, there yeah. painting individual cake pops making again i'm going to put the pictures up cardinal nests cake pops right very different business you know so overnight when the chips kind of took off uh, for the for the lack of better words um i had to overnight learn how to do a cpg product consumer how to, packaged goods right, product. how to package it how to make it shelf stable how to put a sticker on it how to make sure i can produce three thousand bags versus one bag so all that was a learning experience but i had enough chef experience to be able to do that now the challenge for me was learning how to go to market because I'd never done this before. And that's where Lighthouse Labs or these two men in my family um, have been super instrumental. So what is the name of the game when you meet, when I've had people on like Lily's Chocolates or Shane Emmett and New Richmond Ventures, various VCs or private equity people who want us fun. And the space is changing a lot. If you think about all the processed foods and things that are being remaindered for kind of low sugar, ketogenic type things, a whole new section of the aisle. And they call the middle part of the grocery store the morgue because all these legacy brands are just ignored. So you have to move to kind of cleaner eating and some of the things that they hit on with you. But the VCs and private equity people and invest in this and even the strategic buyers such as Mars or Frito-Lay, they want to talk about scale. They want to say, can you get this business to $10 million? It's a very mercenary conversation for a person who wants to be in the moment, mindful, in control of the business. That's where I would get scared about, oh my gosh, so you want me to go from this co-location facility. We've had this as a theme in the show before. It's At some point, you feel like you don't own your own destiny. Oh, if for sure. If you take the money from a certain source, you work for that person. I agree with you. And and do I not look scared? I'm pretty scared <laughs> to learn about scaling and to learn about um, going national. Because taking a brand from one potato chip bag to one million potato chip bags is a very different kind of journey. There's a lot to learn here. And that's why Lighthouse Labs is such a blessing. At the time it's come on, it, it's the perfect timing for me. Kea, we're going to call these Kea chips or Bombay chips. Have you have you orphaned Bombay chips? No, no, no. These are Kea's Bombay chips. And when we make new more product, it'll be Kea's so-and-so. Yeah, I remember Bombay chips, which were exploding during the pandemic with your various other savory pop-ups. Um, you're now in fundraising mode? We are in fundraising mode, yep. So that was launched retail in 2021. Were you just going from store to store, Elwood Thompson's and the others and saying, carry this? I know, they were coming to me. Why? Because word of mouth was coming around? It's word of mouth. Yes, word of mouth is a very powerful tool in, in business. Um, when people eat something delicious, they want more of it. So, and and Elwood Thompson was the first one and they came to me, they approached me about the chips and we said, of course, of course, we'll put this on the shelves. 
So because they're so fine, it's not something that you could sell in a massive Stacy's chip size bag. Uh, these were almost like jewel type small bags that people could buy. It was a really rarefied treat. It was almost like truffle oil chip. Right, right. How did you decide on the sizes? We did two sizes. We did an eight ounce family size bag and then a 1.75 ounce snack size bag to eat with lunch or dinner or you know just to snack on. Um, that's what the market had in place. And I didn't want to uh, rock the boat on that. Okay, I got to ask you about Food Network Spring Baking Championship. It aired in 2021, and it was the, I know you personally, was the hardest year of your life. You are a mother. You are a community person. You've always been a friend of this show. We know each other outside of the show, and I watched you both thrive and suffer in that year when we were all isolated on social, and it felt like seeing a, a family member. I can't imagine the face you had to put on. We've had various people who've been veterans of Food Network and HBO shows and Cooking Network and others, and they tell us how the stuff is made externally. But the, the shadow and persona of that year in particular, I have I know it's brutally hard to talk about, but talk to me about how it all came about. Did they come to you? Did you apply? Um, again, they came to me. Food Network and I had had other interviews with them before, but it didn't pan out. And this time around, it was the pandemic. When I went on to film the show in LA, I was four months pregnant at the time. So I had an added, a huge added challenge versus the other contestants. But Food Network found me, we talked, we had multiple interviews. Um, on my last interview, and this is my favorite part of the of anecdote of the show, the head of, I'm thinking the studio that I was talking to, and he asked me a question right before hanging up. And he said, do you see yourself participating on the show? And out of I don't know where came out of my mouth, I see myself winning. And mic drop and I hung up. And then I kicked myself. I'm like, why did I say that? Why why did I say that? So anyway, that was a fun little part of the, that I remember from doing that. Um, but yeah, they found me. You were pregnant and they flew you out. Was your daughter here? Yes, she was here with my husband. Yeah. How long did that whole process take in the filming? I was and the... there for a month. Wow. Yeah. What's different on the other side that you're allowed to tell us outside the non-disclosure of staging behind the scenes. A lot of people tell me there's just a lot of waiting, a lot of hurry yeah, up and wait. Yeah, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. There's also t a ton of work. Like you film the the actual show and then you film the, the dialogue between you and the camera. That's hours and hours of filming. But I got to give, give credit to Food Network. They were so mindful of my health. They would have ginger chews on my desk. They would have Gatorade sitting for me. There was a doctor on site at all times. They had such great COVID protocols because, you know, that's that was the... It was September 2020. Uh, we, we stayed at this beautiful resort for a month. We were all in a bubble. We got tested two, three times a day, everyone. So I got to give it up to them for doing such a great job. The only other thing I can say about a TV show like that is, you know, when you see the clock on these shows, like 30 minutes or 95 minutes, I used to think that I f for sure that there's some wiggle room in those clocks. And because it's, it's filmed, you know, they can edit that. Oh, no. When they say 30 minutes, they mean 30 minutes. Yeah. How did you deal with the blood pressure and carrying <laughs> right. and nausea and all these other things and COVID? See, this yeah. is the balancing oh act that I can't quite understand. I think because I was in my fourth month, I had just gotten out of the the first three months of the horrid nausea and morning sickness and all that had just kind of dissipated. So I was feeling human again and feeling better about myself. So the timing was really right. It airs in 2021 which everybody in the community is watching with an incredibly mixed heart because of a traumatic delivery that you had. Yeah, my son was born in February 2021. The day the show was airing, 
at 8.50 p.m., um, I was transferring him from one NICU to a bigger NICU. I was in the ambulance with him, and I'm getting all these messages of congrats, and we just heard you on the show, and it's going to air in 10 minutes. And then unbeknownst to them what I'm dealing with, my son was very sick. He had a very rare condition that unfortunately took his life when he was two months old. This is the hinge moment of your life. It changed everything. As a mother, that is the worst thing you can deal with. Um, and I've seen all the highs and lows of motherhood now, and I'm still doing my best to survive it every day. You had a beautiful little daughter <laughs> who I see now is a, you know, when I had the audacity to bring a Persian food truck around and you brought her and she's quite the sassy missy and <laughs> yes. you have to love it. You know, we, we saw the, the tea at the Jefferson Hotel together and your heart is split. And in this case, I imagine that commerce must be the last thing on your mind. You're in a position to maybe parlay this great Food Network victory and all the other interview appearances, but I imagine you must have been at best half-hearted about it. I don't know if I was half-hearted. I feel like everything in your life deserves its own place. Um, so the show had its own joy and celebration. My son's health has had its own um, issues and problems that to deal with. I was in the NICU for two months. He never left the NICU. And every single day I would tote my laptop to the NICU and work from there while he was getting his myriad of things that he needed every single day. At one point he was put on life support. He was on life support for 12 days. And I had to power through all of that and continue to work um, and sort of brave my way through it, if you will. So that was hard, um, to say the least. But I'm really proud of the way I was able to handle everything. And I got to give it up to my parents for that. My parents gave me a really great foundation in this life. They taught me to be courageous. And um, that came in pretty handy. But I'm really proud to say that the company, and I have not told this to a lot of people or have not announced it yet, the company is set up in his name. So every bag of chip will have his name on it. While, I, while this company is set up for my son, I'm going to make it a success for my daughter. Because it's, to me, this company is one giant love letter to both my kids. You are listening to some of our recent episode, Building Kea. Catch the whole thing on pod wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, stay with us. Finally, I got to chat with Ben Smith, the former New York Times media columnist who launched digital news startup Semaphore with the head of Bloomberg Media. Those two media incumbents are thriving and flush with cash. Why decamp to start all over? For some reason, I thought about the metaphor here of LeBron James. I'm a monster Lakers fan. I've been a Lakers fan for my entire life. LeBron James has ported that talent everywhere, from Cleveland to Miami, you know, back to Cleveland to Los Angeles. I don't think of him so much, though, as a kind of a Laker in the Magic or Kareem realm as I do a kind of a self-traveling franchise. And a lot of these free agents will ping each other in the offseason and say, let's get together and, you know, win a trophy, you know, brand regardless, city regardless. And so I'm wondering to what extent that's now the reality among star journalists. I mean, certainly you can go off and start a newsletter through Substack or some of these other services, but you have to be pretty courageous in your convictions to do that. It's kind of eat what you kill, right? Well, I mean, I think most journalists and, and probably the kind of journalists who break news are very kind of clear-eyed about what the kind of level of support you need. I mean, I feel this. You do need lawyers. You need colleagues. You need a good editor. You're not. It's very hard. And you don't see. There are a couple, but you mostly don't see the kinds of journalists who break huge political or business news doing it on their own on Substack. 
because mm-hmm. there's a level of sort of infrastructure you need. And yet at the same time, you feel the appeal of this direct connection to an audience. And I think we're trying to find a sweet spot where that kind of great reporter who breaks news gets both the support that they need to do it at the highest level and the direct connection to an audience that they and that the audience prefer. Let me ask you uh, specifically on the dispatch that you sent Sunday night, because I found it so intriguing that I just had to you know, go and direct message you. You said it's become an axiom that every American presidential campaign helps launch a new medium or media company or both. You wrote there was CNN in 96, Fox and Drudge in 2000, ABC's The Note in 2004. I was lucky enough, you say, to be in the middle of that in 2008 when Politico brought the speed of blogging to political journalism. And again, when social media, embodied by Twitter and BuzzFeed, shaped 2012. Facebook dominated 2016. The scoreboard starts getting murkier there, but I think you could say the resurgent New York Times and Washington Post won the strange COVID election of 2020. But, you write, the scoreboard started getting murkier for a reason in 2020. By then, fragmentation had taken hold in earnest. I don't just mean the MSNBC-CNN-Fox partisan split. I mean a world in which presidential campaigns spend most of their time talking to a confusing array of media figures. Your writer Max Tani mentions Sean Ryan, Clay Travis, Jay Shetty, and Jason Bateman, and reaching tens or hundreds of thousands of viewers at a time. Okay, Jason Bateman, who in my childhood was, you know, I guess, preteen heartthrob, teen wolf. He is now the aspirational pod to go on if you're a Joe Biden. I understand that. Was it Donald Trump is going to potentially be interviewed by Mike Tyson? You know, in terms of reaching the demo of going out there, you can cherry pick more than ever and skip the likes of CNBC, Fox, and MSNBC, and then some. Yeah, I mean, it's a very strange moment in media because the big outlets are getting smaller, right? Like everything is kind of melting a little. Even the most successful New York Times, Washington Post built these huge subscription businesses are fighting to stay level and losing subscriptions as the news got more boring post-Trump and post-COVID. Cable is shrinking, broadcast is shrinking, radio, terrestrial radio is shrinking. And and no single big thing is coming up to replace it. It had seemed like that was social media, but now social media is falling apart too. And what comes next seems to be this huge array of smaller, different things. I mean, one of the, my, my favorite statistics is that if, if you ask people who their favorite podcast host is, like many people do not have a favorite podcast host. For many of them, obviously it's you. But for the, for the, the plurality, it's Joe Rogan, which is you'd expect. But he only gets 5%. So you have a market where the biggest share is 5%. And every other share is smaller. That's a really weird market. It's, it's, you know, everything is in the middle tail. It's not the kind of power law distribution, very, very steep slope downward that we're used to if you look at like search engines or something like that. And was this not in the prophecy of Chris Anderson's bestseller, I think in 2006, The Long Tail, Why the Future of Business is Selling Less of More? No one could imagine it back then. I remember when this book was making the rounds at Business Week, this was still the dominant era of cable TV. That bundle still had not been unbundled. You could not question the supremacy of a CNN, Fox, MSNBC. And now you see a a Disney pullback and say that we'd have to seek a partner for ESPN, which would have been unthinkable. We have to put ABC up for auction. Or you know about CNN's terrible year with the Chris Licht defenestration. It's all happening, you know, if you could explain for our listeners, fundamentally because People are pulling away. My children spend much more time on YouTube, others much more time on TikTok and Instagram than they would anything on linear television. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the long tail prediction did not really come to pass in American commerce. Like Amazon is totally, totally dominant. 
Walmart is in second and then it falls really fast. Didn't come to didn't happen in, you know, digital services, right? Like email, like Gmail, so dominant. Right, right. But I do think in that it's certainly and it and it didn't seem to be happening in media. But now I think in certain areas, it does, does feel like it's, 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 we're sort of shifting into that moment. Yeah. And so people, I mean, when you talk about Jason Bateman and Max brings him up in the column to go on, what is it, Armchair Expert or any of these pods is a huge get for any author. You know, time was you would want to be on Oprah or Terry Gross Fresh Air to sell By a book. By the way, I'm you sure. still would, right? Like, I mean, it's not right. a totally binary thing. Still wish Terry Gross had me on to sell my book, right? Like, but... Also, there are a zillion other outlets reaching smaller but non-zero numbers of people. Can you explain the TikTok phenom? My impression is that it's not getting as much coverage as it should as kind of a media disruption phenom. Because I think of a lot of the ancillary, the connection to the surveillance state and Beijing and whatnot. But when I talk to young people, when I go speak to college kids, high schoolers, there's just so much more time spent on this. And I don't want to seem like an old man, but it just dwarfs everything else we're talking about. Podcast time, YouTube time, and certainly you know time on, on the cable telly. Yeah, I mean, TikTok is obviously the sort of big dominant new player. But in a way, I mean, I think if you ask young people, do you feel passionately attached to TikTok or to the creators you see on TikTok? I mean, it's ultimately a short video player that does a great job showing people videos they like. And I'm not, and I think you can, so I actually find some of the other, the, the notion that there's, you know, it's this algorithm, you know, that they have some super magic algorithm, you know, Facebook in its traditional grindy copycat way is building reels to be another short video player that shows people goofy short videos they like. And I mean, I think one interesting thing about it is neither has any real interest or aspiration in getting into the news or politics space, having seen what happened over the last 10 years. So I think, but I, I don't know. I, I guess I, I tend to think people overreact to dumb youth culture. Let me ask you, how are the linear cable TV players, uh, how are they going to contort to get on that over-the-top thing. I mean, I, I do MSNBC quite a bit, but you sometimes get overtures from an NBC News Now thing or a CBS News Now, these streaming platforms where you don't have to have the cable connection and you don't pay the $170 a month. ABC, to a certain extent, has had to do it. I have not been impressed that CNN has weaned itself. I mean, it did have that foray into, what was it, CNN Plus? Yeah. Which it, it shuttered after blowing hundreds of millions of dollars on. How are they, and again, this is an innovator's dilemma. The cable package, the cable compact was so sweet from a business model perspective to them that they were really disinclined to self-destruct. And now it really seems imminently existential. If you talk to someone like Disney's Bob Iger or Brian Roberts at Comcast, it, it is imminently kind of innovator die. Yeah, I mean, somebody at one of those big cable networks that the president of the network said to me a couple of years ago, you know, I'm not we're too worried because we're melting in the shade, which was like, I sort of thought, oh, that makes sense. Then it's like, wait a second. You're just like, that's not a strategy. Like you're melting. That's not good. Um, and I do think that that is starting to come home. Tell me, Ben, if you can tell me more about that aha conversation with your partner in this, with Justin Smith. Again, the backdrop for him is that he had the ear of Mayor Mike Bloomberg. He he brought in, I remember it was a big deal when they brought him in, I believe, from the Atlantic to take over Bloomberg Media, to be the CEO of Bloomberg Media. You have a guy in Mayor Mike, what is he worth, $75 billion. Too Being much. in that building, I was never impressed that 
media ever had to be a profit center. It just kind of had to cover itself. It, and they've done a great job, not just with Business Week, but with their podcast. Bloomberg TV doesn't have to be so profitable. And even then, you kind of get the spilkies and say, we're not, both of us together at the New York Times and at Bloomberg Media are not going to get the leeway and the resources to innovate, to hit directly this cross-section that you're talking about. What, 200 million English-speaking, college-educated people that want transparency, that want the facts, that want the opinion to be delineated as such. Talk to me about that convo. Yeah, I mean, I say, I mean, you know, it's the news is it's not a this is not, and I think this is actually one of the reasons that venture capital and kind of technology style investment doesn't really make sense in news. It's not like a silver bullet business. It's not like we figured out one thing. I think it's more that we sort of we've been talking for years about kind of I don't know our sense of our the audience's dissatisfaction with what everyone was doing and how hard it is to change. I do think he and I particularly share a sense that American news in particular is so parochial that the big American mm-hmm. outlets filter every story through the lens of what's happening in the United States at that moment. And so when Trump was ascendant, every story about every other country was about how Bolsonaro was the Brazilian Trump and Modi was the Indian Trump and Duterte was the Filipino Trump. And I think with much less attention to, hey, wait, there are these big forces at work that all of these different candidates, all these different people are riding. They're not basically about the United States. And when Black Lives Matter is ascended, every, you know, every global story becomes seen through that lens when COVID and through the American lens. And when COVID hits, every I, I think that like there was a very, very strong impulse to cover it as an American story, as what is Donald Trump doing wrong, which on one hand, obviously true, obviously a great story, obviously what accountability journalism ought to be doing. But then at some point you step back and you say, huh, like Western Europe and the United States, the outcomes weren't that different. We did worse. Trump screwed some stuff up, but there's other stuff happening. And I think like these are the biggest stories in the world, right? The rise of the far right, the rise of social media, the rise and the spread of COVID. And they're just fundamentally global stories that when you cover them from a parochial American lens, you lose a lot. You are listening to Ben Smith, editor of Semaphore. Catch the whole episode. We call it the new news thing on pod. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Find me on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and beyond at handle fulldradio. And every week, I'm on both NPR's Here and Now and MSNBC. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.